Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to a fast-fading summer here in Melbourne and to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. I'll be here for the next two hours, then the excellent Done by Law program. And it's the last weeks of the Listen Sponsor Drive. Sponsors, together with the Radiothon, keep 3CR independent. Increasingly important with monopoly media controls in Australia. If you're not already a sponsor, please do so by calling the station on 9419 that's double seven, or go to the website for instructions. That's 3cr.org.au and become a valued member of this unique radio station. Mr. Kevin Healy is on his weekly yearly holiday on the beach. The weather has been certainly kind this year, but he'll be back next week with lots to talk about. Special tribute today to a woman who dedicated her life from 1975 until her death recently, Shirley Shackleton, to supporting Timor Lest and bringing to justice those who ordered and carried out the brutal murder of Australian journalists in 1975, one of whom was her husband, Greg Shackleton. And I'll be featuring two interviews I recorded with Shirley in the early 1990s. The missing capsule on the road from Rio Tinto's mine in northern Western Australia to a depot in Perth. It's been found, the proverbial needle in the haystack. But why did it become lost in the first place? And how often does something like this happen? I'll be speaking with Dr. Margie Beavis from the Medical Association for the Prevention of War and the International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons. Then the coup in Peru and the subsequent jailing of the President Castillo, followed by Western wars and Western war crimes. Speaking with writer, theologian and social commentator John Guirapel. So please stay tuned until 6 this evening and this Tuesday home time. Today we'll remember Shirley Shackleton, Thailand's fighter for justice for East Timor, when her husband, Greg Shackleton, together with four other journalists, were murdered by a secret unit of the Indonesian military in a pre-invasion raid on Balibo, East Timor, in October 1975. The fight began. The fight for justice for the journalist, together with Roger East, another Australian journalist, murdered in December 1975. I interviewed Shirley many times over many years, and today we'll hear two of those interviews. The first relates to the release of the Sherman Report. The long-awaited report by the former National Crime Authority Chairman Tom Sherman on the deaths of six Australian newsmen in East Timor 21 years ago has been presented to Parliament. 
and in an article in the Sydney Morning Herald titled Still No Answers on the East Timor Six, Shirley Shackleton, widow of Greg Shackleton, one of the five killed at Balibo, said, The salient points of Mr Tom Sherman's evaluation of the deaths of six Australian journalists in East Timor in 1975 may be riveting for anyone reading them for the first time. For me, there is only one revelation that will be meaningful. That is, to see an Australian government accept the truth that early on the morning of October 16, 1975, five Australian journalists were killed at Balibo by an attacking force under the Indonesian officers. I spoke with Shirley last evening after her return from Canberra and asked her first if she had any confidence that the investigation would be anything more than another attempt to sweep the matter under the diplomatic carpet. Well, when I heard the terms of reference, I realised that there was a lot of danger in those terms of reference. But after 20 years, I felt we had to go with it because it may turn up something they weren't expecting. And remember, I'm an optimist, otherwise I wouldn't have been working this long. So I think to put things down out of hand is sort of making them happen. So what you do is you go along and you say, right, well, we're going to use it the best way we can and let's hope we find something. And, of course, they have found startling evidence that there were murders, so... Can you tell me what you know about the way the investigation was conducted? It was very thorough. Mr Sherman absolutely did it by the book. He was courteous to me. He was courteous to others. He kept us informed. And he describes in his report how he went about it and why he went about his interviews in the way he did. But, of course, the big problem is he couldn't call anyone in to give expert witness. He couldn't swear them under oath. He had to take whatever turned up and do what he could with what they told him. But who was directing him to his, the people he was interviewing? A lot of people like me who knew who they were have known over the years because of our own efforts to establish. I mean, I could have written the Sherman evaluation perfectly happily and I could have done it for free in about four months without talking to anyone because I've done all that work before. But what's wonderful is to have it down in print in a government report. Who can't take any notice of it if I wrote it? So there were no surprises for me. Can you summarise it? How big is it first? 150 pages but printed on both sides. So it's too big to fax. (laughs) The most important thing that he found and decided is that sometime before 7am on the morning of the 16th of October, the journalists were in the village and led by army officers, Indonesian army officers, came a group of what he called irregular troops. Now, I don't quite know what irregular troops means. And the gentleman from Foreign Affairs and the lady from Mr Downer's office were unable to tell me what he could possibly say. And, of course, he's not here to ask. He's gone on holiday. I think it's the old story that they were supposed to have been volunteers because he clearly believes in a civil war, which, of course, didn't happen. So if you believe that there were volunteers going into East Timor, and that they did it, then that the blame goes on to other people. Do you see how skillful it was all worked out in the beginning? And the Sherman Report does absolutely nothing to change that, but it does, it does say that they were Indonesian troops and that they were led by Indonesian officers. So that's startling. Also, as for Roger East, he was shot by an unidentified Indonesian soldier, but of course there were dozens and they were execution squads, so we know what really happened. But the one that you just can't find is the one who did it. Can you elaborate a bit more on the report? Because as you said, it's 150 pages. What mm. else is he saying? He's giving all the information. This is a full 
report of what he got from people who, in fact, gave information and then later on said, no, I don't remember saying that, I've given it, perhaps I've got a better view of this now. Uh, Mostly supporting evidence, and you've got to realise that the people whose evidence was most useful were traitors at the time. They were Timorese who decided that Indonesia should come in because they believed, they'd been hoodwinked into believing that Indonesia would make East Timor prosperous. And those people, in fact, as I say, were traitors at the time. In the meantime, when they found out what Indonesia was really doing in East Timor, they were so horrified they got out. And they're now really worried and upset by what they helped create and they're trying to make amends. But at the same time, in some ways, they're they're watching their back. So I could read you bits out of it if you'd like me to. I mean, there are numbers of little bits and pieces saying the East Timorese were not armed. This is in Balabo. Their role was to carry provisions and stores. Now, these are the only Timorese that actually were in Balabo, and it says clearly in this report they were not armed. Uh, It says that there was a lot of... uh, The Indonesians were wearing civilian clothes, not army dress. They had yellow headbands round their heads, so they were attempting to look as sort of hail fellow well-met people in there. Rogerio Lobato explained that it was part of the Fretland approach not to fire into West Timor in order to avoid giving the Indonesian a pretext to invade East Timor. And yet Mr Sherman, despite this, is saying that there was firing. And you can tell the way he writes the report. He assumes that the Indonesians wouldn't have been firing unless someone was firing at them. But you see, I don't think that's a true assumption at all. And he's taken no notice of this particular. Balabo was overrun and there were also soldiers that reported to me that they tried to convince, they tried very hard to convince the Australians to retreat from their positions, but they refused because they wanted to take evidence of the Indonesian attack. In other words, the Australian journalists were being exact. They didn't want to come out saying, we heard a lot of noise, we don't know who it was. Uh, you know, they were doing their job really well. And of course, they say over and over again that the Australians said, we won't be killed, Indonesia are friends of ours. That won't happen to us. And some people say they were killed immediately in the attack. Other people describe how one came out of the house and was shot down. They don't think he died. Two more came out with their hands up calling out Australians. They were struck down by knives and the rest were gunned down. So obviously there was an awful lot of stuff going on. One man says he saw that the Australians were killed by the Indonesian troops. After they were killed, they were gathered together and dressed then in military camouflage suits and put next to a machine gun. The machine gun pointed towards the east and then they were placed later on in the town square near the road leading to the fort. Later on, someone says how he saw the bodies being dragged and then photographed sitting behind, gruesome, and photographed from behind, sitting behind machine guns to try and make it look as if they'd been fighting. And it's an absurd suggestion. But see, only people who were convinced that anyone there had to be communist could have concocted such an absurd story. And someone else says to me, they said to me after being killed, they put the uniforms on, some military uniforms there. And they put also some rifles and they took photos. But then those people say they don't believe in these photos of what you see and what you hear because these people were journalists. They were neither communists nor Fretland helpers. So all the way through we're getting this information. But it seems to me that Mr Sherman in his summing up, which you asked me to give, he's ignored all of that. And he said the same old thing that everyone said. They were killed by irregular troops. That gives them out to the Indonesians. In crossfire, he actually says crossfire, and yet there's all this evidence throughout the report that says there wasn't any crossfire. So, 
Now, Shirley, you've been investigating this for 21 years. Mm. What does your research show? Also with Michelle Turner, you must understand. Mm, What we both believed, because we talked about it very greatly, was that the Australian journalists went into Bulabo, refused to be with armed Fretland soldiers. The soldiers said anyway they were withdrawing from Balbo, begged them not to stay. They insisted that they weren't in danger from Indonesians because we were best friends with Indonesia. And that the Indonesians crossed the border. They knew, knowing that there was no one in Balbo, the only people with the Indonesians were Timorese who'd been captured in other towns and forced to carry the Indonesians' weapons and clothing and food. And therefore the Indonesians came into the town, they saw the Australians coming out, they went forward and killed them. We don't know exactly how we know. Some were knifed. Some might have been tortured, horribly gruesomely. Some might have been lucky and been shot early on. One seems to have survived quite a long time. Uh, there is one man who says he cooked them a meal, that in fact they weren't shot the way we were told. So there's all this conflicting evidence. This is why people have to be done under oath, and this is why this report's magnificent, though it's got all the holes and all the inconsistencies, and Mr Sherman had no understanding of the culture of the place. So he couldn't really put together as much as we did. Uh, but there's no question they were murdered by Indonesians because they were doing their job and they had to be shut up. What they didn't know, of course, was Greg always already took films of Indonesian warships down on the coast. And what were Indonesian warships doing if Indonesia had no intention towards East Timor? Right down on the borders, they were landing troops. That's what they were doing. And Greg had already got the film out, which scotched all of that silly idea that they were volunteers, that they were that Fretland had invited them in and so on. But there are a lot of extraordinary allegations coming from people too while I was in Sydney and while I've been in Canberra. Uh, there's a, an Australian who says that the Australian journalists violated Indonesian airspace by flying in, and yet he's made no attempt to verify any of this. And I was able to tell him on television, well, my husband's notebook records that they will not be going anywhere near Indonesian airspace. And since he didn't see it and since he hasn't interviewed the pilot, and anyway, it's irrelevant. What if they did? You know, the fact that they were killed later somewhere else. Uh, It seems to me like this man has his book to sell and he's going to say any wayward, ridiculous thing. It's called The Tim Tim Man. And in fact, if if this man had wanted to find the most insulting thing he could have called it, that's what he would have called it, because Tim Tim is the Indonesian name for it. And when I told him that, he said, I'm an Indonesian citizen now. It's the 27th province. And I was able to say, not according to the UN, it's not. You were briefed on the inquiry's findings mm. by the Department of Foreign Affairs. Yes. But that wasn't an easy thing for you to get done, was it? No. Mr Sherman had suggested very kindly that the family should be briefed. Uh, when I suggested that I thought I would like to be briefed so that I could let the families down gently, at first I was told, well, we could brief you, yes, but it will be by phone. And I thought at first, that's good. Then I sat down and I thought, no, after 20 years... That's not good enough because I've worked all this time on this. And I know now that the telephone can be an instrument of torture when you're like that. I mean, to hear things that I've heard on the telephone, it's just terrible. And you're still alone with it. You're in a room and they can cut you off any time they like. So I asked for face-to-face and I suggested I'd do it in Sydney. The government said no. So then I said, all right, I'll come to Canberra. So then they said, all right, you can do it in Sydney. So I went into the meeting and they were very kind to me I have to tell you though that seeing it in writing and hearing this man reading it out to me Mr Potts reading it out 
and seeing it written down that they were murdered virtually by Indonesian troops, uh, commanded by an Indonesian officer, pretending to be civilians, seeing those words and all the images that what happened to them afterwards being dragged across, sat up in front of machine guns, their bodies burned, dressed in uniforms, silly things like that, I just, it was so terrible. I don't remember anything else of the interview. I've taped it, and I may listen to it one day. But I really don't remember anything else, except that at the very end, I realised if if the government sent two people to Sydney and paid those airfares, and I guess they travel first class, rather than have me go down, then they don't want me in Canberra. And I managed to say, I think I'm going to go to Canberra. And they looked very surprised. And I said, because that's where Mr Downer is going to table this report. And I think I should be right there when it happens. So I left that place. I did an interview with it somewhere in a park. And I don't remember very much about it. After the interview, I went into a toilet in a hotel on a corner somewhere near the place where I was going to buy the ticket to go, the bus ticket to go to Canberra. And I just threw up. And out came all those images and out came those words, vomiting them all up. And I threw up two or three times in that afternoon at those thoughts and things. And then I got on the bus and went to Canberra. And luckily, the Sydney Morning Herald asked me to write a piece. And I said, the only way I can do it is if you give me a typewriter or a word processor, because I haven't got one with me. And I got right into the press gallery, where I got mobbed for interviews. So I held a press conference, which I've never done before. About 50 people turned up. I was sort of too tired and too busy writing the piece and just rushing down to do it at 1.30 with minutes to spare to get nervous. So I don't really remember much about that either, but I know there were lots of lively questions. And generally, the reaction of the journalists, most of whom were so young that they might have only been four or five when this happened, that is just total, almost total disbelief that it could have happened, the Australian government would have done nothing and that this would go on for 20 years. And almost total disbelief that uh, just by having an evaluation, not a proper judicial inquiry, but just a mere evaluation, that so much could be brought to the light. But it's dangerous to have a full inquiry, isn't it? Yes, it's dangerous to have the evaluation because they found out possibly what some people didn't want to know. But it's been couched in terms that the Indonesians can throw it away and say they found out nothing new. What chances of a full inquiry? Just about none. As many chances as there were to have an evaluation. Oh, and 20 years ago, who would have given me a chance of ever even being able to speak on radio or television or do any of the things I've done? So you've got to be optimistic and you must never give up and you never fail yourself. You never say, oh, there's not going to be. See, that's what too many people do. And I think that leads to very poor mental health. The people that I know who've just said, there's nothing you can do, you're never going to know, they're all in deep trouble mentally. I think I've got very good mental health because I've never, ever said, they're going to beat me. I've never failed myself. I've said, no, we're going to get a full evaluation. And we are, believe me, we're going to get a full evaluation. Because I believe the AJA will, the Australian Journalists Association will back it. I think most politicians will back it, all Australians, because see, who do you know? Who's next? Who's next to be killed? There have been all these other people murdered in other parts of Asia. One of the things that I think I might have to do is write a little booklet on what to do when your family disappears, how to go about what you do. Because I've had 20 years of experience and I think I've been fairly spectacularly successful from a position of absolutely no power at all.
just by being, keeping it on and finding that when other, see, a lot of the things that I get credit for, I have to tell you, have come from a chance remark from someone else. I say, wouldn't it be nice if, and I say, oh, that's what I'll do. Good on you. Thanks. Keep thinking. And I do it. So that's how you go about it. So the answer is, of course, there is no chance of getting an evaluation, but we got one. Who could be called to a full judicial inquiry to oh. give that information? Gough Whitlam, John Kerrin, Ambassador Walcott. Um, we know the names of the Indonesians. We could at least name them. They're in this report. People name the, the Indonesians. I'm also asking Indonesia to have a full judicial inquiry and the people who did it to be put on trial. I don't want them, mind you, to be killed at the end of it. I want them simply on trial and admit what they did. It may be very good for them too, because I think a lot of them, in fact, I know a lot of them are carrying terrible guilt at what they've done. It would be very good to clear the air too, because the Timorese who were traitors at the time are very brave men to have come forward for the evaluation. They've had to trust Mr Sherman, you see. I've had to say to them, trust him, because I'm sure he won't give the names. He's not given the names of people who ask for their names not to be given. Files. What files are there? Dear Steve Files, we're told with Mr Sherman he looked at. He also interviewed people from ASIO, and he says none of the information he was given changed his view. Therefore, in that case, they should be able to open them and publish them. But the essential thing is that one lot of information that was given to him but not in the evaluation, was simply told to him by people who said, your brief's too narrow, we're not going to cooperate. But we'll tell you now that you've got to look at all the DST files the day before the incident at Balabo. He hasn't looked at them. Because, see, he's followed his brief completely. So if they didn't front up and give him that eyewitness, then he's not going to believe it. And they wouldn't front up because they said, you can't find anything of any value. We're not risking our lives for something as narrow as that. But they can come out. And I think once a judicial inquiry is in it, see, there's loads of people got in touch with him. Uh, they're not identified. They've just got a number. When I read what they say, I know who most of them are, of course. But a lot of them I don't. They had to be verified. They had to show who they were, etc. For instance, even when I went and gave my submission, I had to show him my driving licence all done correctly by the board. So once there's a full judicial inquiry, since so many people came out of the woodwork for the evaluation, think what will happen then. And there are so many Australians who, who simply will not want to go on the witness stand, but who must, for our own conscience and for the sake of paying pro proper respect to my husband and his colleagues and to Roger East, must be paid. Can you see any difference now with a Liberal government than a, a Labor government coming forward with this? I was told at the time, I said, why would Gareth Evans do this? I just can't understand it. I would Mr Keating agree, and they said, well, there's an election to be fought, so this will be in their favour that they've done this. But that's why the brief, that's why the lines were so narrow, so that they wouldn't be able to find out all the stuff. But see, they found it out anyway, because the truth will always come up. If you keep pushing for it, the truth will finally emerge. And the fact that Mr Downer has tabled the entire report, I think is a fine thing for him to do. He was also extremely courteous to me after although it was his advisers saying no, you won't be briefed, you won't be given a personal face-to-face -face briefing but in fact when I said well I'll come to Canberra and they presumably asked him, he said oh well do it if she wants it. She deserves it. I have a feeling that he'd say well she does deserve consideration and after all I'm the one that worked 20 years I'm the one that knows this background over and over again. 
the other families mainly, and I think you've got to always respect other people's ways of grieving and their way, except for two or, two or three of them have, have in the last couple of years come out and said, well, now that we know there is something going on, we'll support you because they didn't even know what I was doing. They're in England. And uh, they're all changing. And, of course, there have been terrible things happening in England. There's one aunt of uh, Brian's who has had agoraphobia ever since she heard how he died four years ago and is in terrible state. So for people like that, the truth has to be found because it's the fear of what happened to them that gives you agoraphobia that makes you not sleep, not the actual fact of it. Somehow, though, it's ghastly. You can handle it better when you've got the truth. And I always knew that. And in fact, I can tell you that my son this week has suddenly got an incredible confidence, he tells me, since he's heard that this report's established what really happened. Uh, he's fourth-year law, and he said, I don't want to be ignorant anymore. Can you give me your copy of the report when you finish with it? And I said, oh, I've done better than that. I'm, I've got a copy for you. So that's on its way now. And how are you feeling now, Shirley? Very tired. Because I've had, um, I actually went to Sydney just to attend a conference on East Timor because I was also asked to open a photographic exhibition that was going to be put on for a couple of days while the conference was on. And I thought it was going to be a very interesting time and I would simply sit in the conference hall and take notes. But of course all this blew up. And so fortunately I got into the first two days without interruption but the last two days were just maniac. I was pulled out of the conference. I was taking places and interviewed and I went to play. I did phone calls. I did things on awful lines. It was just exhausting. And I was getting up every morning to get into the conference by nine. And then when I thought I was going to get a break, I suddenly realised I've got to go to Canberra. And so I was getting up at six and getting into television studios at seven o'clock in the morning and then going on with interviews and, and writing pieces for the Sydney Morning Herald and so on. And there we are. It was been very tiring. But... It is rewarding, and um, when I'm not so tired, I think I'll see it as a great victory. Uh, everyone else seems to see it that way. At the moment, I just sort of feel like, for instance, coming over here today, I felt I'll never make it if I don't have a good shower. So I stood under the shower for about 15 minutes, something I never do because I'm so conscious of water. And then I was in danger of wanting to go to sleep under the shower. <laughs> but anyway, here I am, and... Um, Perhaps in a week or two I'll think of it as a great victory, but actually what it really is is simply a very good step in the right direction.
and listening to the first of two interviews from the 1990s featuring Shirley Shackleton. Now the second of two interviews with Tyler's fighter for justice for East Timor, Shirley Shackleton, who died recently. This one focuses on Shirley's return from a visit to England. A recent SBS Dateline program featured East Timorese activist Shirley Shackleton returned to East Timor and in particular to Balibo where her husband was one of five journalists murdered by the Indonesian military almost 25 years ago. Shirley, when we last spoke, it was the week before Christmas and we talked about the possibility of you going to East Timor and that you felt it'd be quite a long time before this eventuated because of finances. But you've been there. How did you do it? A very good friend rang me and said, everyone seems to be going to Timor and you're the one who should and you're not. And I said, I know, I know, but I'd love to go. And she said, you deserve to go. So I came back and I thought, well, if I was the publicity agent, which is what I was before I ever got married, and I was the client, I was my client, how would I get my client to Timor? And then I thought, put a proposal to one of the television stations and suggest it might be interesting to follow me round, and that's what I did, and SBS took it up. How long before they took it up? Instantly. I mean, I think they said yes. I went, oh, what a great idea, and then the next day they were onto the phone and saying, uh, could you go at this time, and da-da-da-da-da. I wrote out a proper proposal of what I thought I could achieve there, but it did not include speaking to Tomás González. Tell us who he is for those who didn't see the documentary. He's one of the people who virtually invited the Indonesians to take his country away from him. I expect he would say I had no idea that's what I was doing. I just thought I was helping them go in. And I believed all the Indonesian propaganda of the day, that Fretland was communist, and I thought that they would put the communist insurgency down and hand the reins to me, and I would become like governor. He would say he had no idea of the barbarity that was about to take place. He was loyal to Indonesia for 24 years and then in January of last year, that's last year, not this year, he was called into military headquarters, shown the plans to destroy Timor if they voted because by then they were just beginning to talk about the UN giving them a vote, maybe sometime in the next year or so. He read the plans and nearly died of fright. He started leaking it all to Shinana. So he's been forgiven for his wicked, wicked sins because, in fact, he possibly did save a lot of lives and he went back to Timor. And he's a very brave man because he chose to speak to me and we didn't do any deals with him. We made no promises. Well, he heard I was there and he wanted to tell me because I think he's like one of those men I always thought would start happening. I thought when they get old, they'll want it off their conscience. And what did he get off his conscience? The fact that he'd seen Eunice Josphere who was appointed Minister for Information in the Habibi government, risen in the ranks of the army, shoot my husband down. An unarmed civilian, with their hands up, surrendering, he lifted up his machine gun and riddled the four men out the front of the house with bullets, and he had about 500 soldiers with him, and the moment he'd done that, there was a slight silence, and then they all did the same. So no wonder they had to get rid of the bodies. Think what they would have looked like with all those bullets in them. And where was the other person? He was still in the house and Thomas did not see what happened to him. He was told to go away once the newsmen were dead. He went away, but when he came back, the fifth man was dead and they were all having petrol poured on them and they were being burnt. 
How much of this did you know before? Oh, most of it, but we didn't know it for certain. Uh, if you put together various different accounts, uh, there are a lot of people who would tell us things, but they wouldn't allow us to use their names. So in other words, if you're working on something like this, as I have, if you can't back it up, you can't use it because it's just hearsay. James Dunn and his wonderful book, Timor People Betrayed, uh, published that the name of the man who had led the force attacking him was Eunice Josphere. He was alias Captain Andreas. That's all those years back. It's the CIA who told all of that information to Jim Dunn. And where does Jose Martin come into it? Well, he was also there with Tomas. He escaped to New York or went to New York on business for the Indonesians. I don't know how he got to New York, but he contacted the Australian government and said he would give witness to what happened to the journalists. So he came out to Australia, and I was present when he was cross-examined by a QC in Melbourne, and the information he gave us was very, very close to what this man did. But it wasn't believed because he was considered back then just a total traitor. And people said, and you couldn't help but think yourself, maybe he'll go where the money is and maybe he thinks that by telling this story he'll get money, he'll get some support or something. I think he went to live in Portugal for many years and then when the Sherman report was announced or the Sherman preliminary investigation, he was lured back to Indonesia. Now this is from Thomas. And when Mr Sherman was looking for him, he was being poisoned. But that's from Thomas. He didn't actually see the body. He's just been told that's what happened. That's another backup. That witness, it's down. It's, in, it's there. It's, it's, it was witnessed. It was done by a QC in Melbourne. So if there was ever a full judicial inquiry, those two bits of testament would be important. And there's, uh, there's others who will not ever come forward unless there is a full judicial inquiry. It's that catch-22. And so long as the Australian government says, we haven't got witnesses, so we won't have an inquiry, and they say, we are witnesses, you've got to have an inquiry, they go, we won't have an inquiry because there are no witnesses. And so, who are these people without actually naming them? Well, just Timorese who were there. And did you speak to some of those Timorese when you were there this time? No, I stuck just with Thomas because we had the documentary to do. And not all of them are in Timor. Some of them have been in Australia for years. Yes, and I haven't necessarily sat and talked to them, but I virtually know what they have to say and I know their names. But until there is such a... I have no right to, you know, give their identities out. The issue of what happened to their remains, their bones, will you ever find that out? I think so, yes. People know, and you know, even though they burnt them and then they pulverised them, I don't think you can pulverise skulls or teeth. They always seem to lie. Bits of skull, even if they cracked the skull, it would be there somewhere. You do often forget these ghastly things. You sort of put them away somewhere and then they come back. A friend did tell me once that he'd heard that what was left of the journalists were just thrown into the bushes at the side of the house where we were. And people in Balabo, while we were there this time, they were very much afraid to talk because they're still close to the border and the Indonesians are still crossing the border and, and causing trouble. And they might go on crossing the border for the next 20, 40 years. And so people in Balabo are very, very scared. And the death of Roger East? We didn't get anything conclusive. There are lots of conflicting theories or evidence, we'll say, 
There could have been two men who looked a little like Roger. One seems to have been seen down at the beach, which is where you'd think he'd be if he'd been shot on the wharf. But another was right up near a wall in Dilly, where there is now a wall and a pavement. There was nothing then, oh, 50, 60 metres from the beach. I spoke to three men this time about Roger. They were picked up by the military and, and ordered to go and pick up all the dead bodies. There were hundreds and hundreds of bodies. They didn't just kill, you know, the odd person on the wharf that they'd gone and got because they thought they were political. Roger was killed the day after the invasion. And, of course, they killed hundreds and hundreds of people. They just went and got anybody and shot them. They were all piled up on the beach, all the way down to Bishop Bellows' house, if you have any idea of Dilly. The wharf down to the Bellows' house is a huge area. I suppose it's about as far as between South Melbourne and halfway up to St Kilda if you're walking along the beach. Just strewn with bodies. There was a man lying on his back. He, he certainly looked like Roger. He was wearing civvies. He wasn't armed. He had sandy coloured hair which is very unusual in Timor. He was lying on his back and someone had put candles and flowers all around him and lit them. And they think that whoever did it found his body somewhere near the wharf and then dragged him up there because there was on that corner, there was a building where he used to go to meet people, which they laughingly called the Australian Embassy. So it was a place where you went to meet people and have a drink and so on. And it looked like somebody dragged him up and put him the closest thing to Australia that, that they knew. So we haven't got conclusive evidence on Roger, but other people have said that they believe that was Roger, that I didn't interview. We've heard of that. It sounds to me very like him. There wouldn't be that many red-headed men or sandy-coloured-headed men. And he was just burnt along with all the other bodies and put there under the pavement. Now there's a pavement and a wall. There was a story, though, that he went there without weapons and that the body was found... Without with, weapons. Without weapons, was it? They saw no weapons. Oh, uh, the government story was that he was armed. Right, we right. had actually had grenades strapped to his body. Oh, no, 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 that's the man at the hotel, righto, and he probably could have, and I should hope he did, but not when he was killed. The night before the invasion, so this is two nights before he was killed, he came into the Turismo where he was staying to the dining room and ate, ate a meal. And John, who's worked there all these years, who worked very hard for, for, for independence, he said that Roger came in full army fatigues, with grenades strapped to his legs and carrying a gun and everything else. And he went off, he thought, to meet the president, right? But never saw him again. But this is two days later, and the body was found unarmed, dead body was found without arms and in, in uh, jeans. And believe me, if the Indonesians killed him on purpose and he'd had arms, he'd have been left with the arms on him in order to do that. But the Australian government did tell, Peacock did tell... Roger's sister that he was found armed, but none of the men who buried him saw any of that. But I think that Roger, having decided to go up to them, see, leaving Australia to go to report what might turn out to be a war, not going armed and saying, I've never needed a gun in my life, I've only ever needed my typewriter, that's a very different thing to having decided that when everyone else pulls out, all government's gone, 
the Australian government's gone, the aid workers have gone, the Red Cross workers have gone. There's no one left in Dili except Roger East. He's the only Australian or European even in Dili and he's there because he's decided this is going to be such a frightful and unequal battle that someone's going to have to get the news out. And he knew that he could contact Andrew Waterhouse was up on the Cape of Cape York with a receiver and he knew he could send out signals to him. So for Roger not to have got himself armed and to be ready to retreat and defend himself would have been idiotic. So of course he got all that stuff together. And I think he went off probably somewhere and they had a bit of a laugh and he said, well, here I am, I'm ready. When it comes, I'll shove this on and get out with you guys. But they got him before he could get out. There's one story that he had dysentery. So he might have been just too ill to go anywhere when the bombardment started. And since they knew... I'm certain they knew Roger was there. They made a beeline for where he was. Did he manage to get any messages through to Cape York? Well, no, he didn't ever have to do that because he was sending it through Reuters. He was the Reuters correspondent. And he would go down to the um, uh, telecommunications centre in Dili. He wouldn't have been going through all that palaver uh, uh, right up until... It was only for when he got to the mountains he'd have done that. And I think he was an incredibly brave man. I mean, he was 47 or so. He'd had a lot of experience in war. He'd worked in Spain. He'd been in the Navy in the war. Uh, to decide to put everything that's important to you aside and stay with these people who were going to be butchered, outnumbered, outgunned in every way, I think it was the most amazingly heroic thing to have done. But then again, surely the journalists and the cameramen did that too. No. Uh, when they went in, it was quite different for them. I'm not minimising their bravery, but it was different for them because at the time they went, Suharto was saying, we have no intention of invading East Timor. The Australian government had been saying for years, we're Indonesia's best friends, and we were. We did everything we could to help them get rid of the Dutch. The Timorese had had a coup which had failed. There was no evidence to suggest that that, had, that that was controlled from Indonesia. At the time, you just thought it was two political parties struggling for power. They wouldn't be in any danger from the Timorese who were asking for people to come and see what was happening. And they didn't expect to be in danger from the Indonesians either. They expected they might be arrested if they saw something they shouldn't. So it wasn't quite the same thing as Roger. Roger knew that five were already dead. He knew his fate if he was caught. And he made the decision in spite of that, in spite of the fact that by then it was obvious they were going to, in, to invade. Every day they got closer to December. They hoped it would not be till after Christmas because they thought uh, Madani being a Christian and the head of the, he wouldn't invade before Christmas. I mean, I think the journalists were wonderful, but I think he stands out like a beacon. The fact that they died shouldn't really imbue them with anything more than they deserved. It should also not mean that they get criticised as they do, that it was their own fault, as though they should have been clairvoyant as well, because after all, it's their own fault that they got killed. I just think there is a difference, and uh, Greg would be the first to say, well, we thought we were coming home again. They only had three days. The Channel 17 were given three days to get in and find out if there was any, any truth to the rumours. That's all they were. They were told if they were getting really, really stirring stuff, they could stay a bit longer. But they weren't encouraged to stay because it cost a lot to insure them. I know they were insured for the first three days. I don't know about the rest of it. And they were both commercial yes. TV channels, weren't yes. they? There's no ABC there. The ABC were there, but they pulled out just, just as Greg was coming in. 
the ABC team came to see me when I went down to the ABC uh, studios here to, to do an interview very early. They came and said, oh, we can't tell you how bad we feel because we spoke to your husband on the way. We were leaving. We were pulling out because it was too expensive for us to stay any longer for the insurance and the ABC wouldn't pay it. So they were told to come home. They hadn't got the film they went to get and it just so happened that Greg got there when he was able to see the, um, the, the battleship down in the harbour. They said we're disappointed in one way or another way we would be dead too. How many reports did they actually get through in those Who? days? Greg Our and fellows. Yeah. They seem to have them on the news every night, something from the time they... they Greg, for instance, interviewed all the top people in Dili before they went down there. He just worked like a dog. He got people from both sides of the political spectrum. He got people in the army. He got the government spokespeople. He got the church. He did all those interviews and they all came back. He did interviews on the way to Balibo. There was one remarkable time when he saw a Timorese being roughly treated and went over and found they were going to kill him because they believed that he was a spy and he persuaded them to not do it, send him back to Dillian, make sure he gets tried. And then they went on. They pulled back from Balibo one day and then went back forward again. And the next day was when the Indonesian murder team, they'd sent specially to kill those journalists, they arrived, led by Thomas. So he just took them over the border and said, there's Balibo. And they went in and there was no fighting. There was a lot of firing, but it all came from the cowboys on the western side. And in a way, if you think of your sphere and the way they carried on then, it was, it was a Cowboys and Indians operation. Was that your first trip to Balibo or were you there? No, I went there in 89. In fact, that's what I went back to do. Do you remember the story of the children who sang? I wanted to trace them. I wanted to talk to them and ask them what happened on that day. What persuaded you to do something so incredibly dangerous? And Just repeat that story. Um, well, I planted a tree because I realised that it was, the 20, it was the 16th of October and I was in Timor and I said, I've got to get down there and plant a tree. Whatever happens, I've got to do that. And so I won't go through all the kerfuffle of getting down there. The year was 89. And when I got down there, I was told I couldn't plant a tree and there weren't any trees. I had originally said I'd like a eucalyptus and they went, no, they'll die here. And there were hundreds of eucalyptus all around. It was quite strange. And finally, I was given a tree and I was finally given permission because they could see I wasn't going to leave. I just sat there and said, right, well, I'm staying till you agree. I'm not moving. I just put my head over my face and pretended to go to sleep. <laughs> and they all wanted to go to bed. So they kind of said, come back tomorrow. And so there we are. And I put the tree into the ground and as the roots went into the ground this most amazing singing burst out and it was so extraordinary I turned around and looked to see where it was going you couldn't see anybody just an old corrugated iron building or, or fence I seem to remember and I said to the soldiers there what's that because I thought it was extraordinary and they went oh just some native kids uh, practicing mass and I thought in Teton practicing mass but I was very emotional because I was speaking to each of the journalists. I'd known three of them very well and I had got to know about the others through their families in the meantime. Um, and that night when I went to sleep, you know how sometimes when you're on holiday and hundreds of things happen during the day and you go over it, you think that was an amazing day. I just sat bolt up in bed and said, oh no, that wasn't a mistake. Those kids did that deliberately, obviously. That's the way they went to the, to the ceremony. And so I wanted to find them. I still do, but I wasn't able to. It was so secret and so dangerous that no one ever talked about it. No one in Balibo knows it happened.
How long did the singing go on for? Ten minutes. It's amazing, isn't it? Amazingly brave. I mean, that's when I said to myself, they're going to win. I always used to say, if there's any kind of fairness in the world, they'll win. And by hook or by crook, we'll do all we can to help them. You've said that too, you know. But that night I said, if little kids will do that, they're going to win. And they'll be all adults now if they're still alive. And I'd like to know if they did all survive or what has happened to them. That's something I want to do in the future. But maybe it will take a couple of years yet before things settle down, before people go back to their homes. And I'll have a chance to find out the names of all the people that were in the choir. I'll be desolate if I can't. And what was left of Balibo when you went this time? Burnt out houses, looking like the Blitz in London. Rows and rows of houses that are completely burnt out. And where are the people living? In the houses. There's nothing else for them to do. They've got bits of plastic up. It was raining. It was muddy everywhere. They'll all catch terrible colds and TB and all the horrible things that go on when you're exposed. Some of them will just die of exposure. There's one family that lived next to a cliff big rocky high cliff and their house you can't actually live in the house they sort of crouch at the side of the house as it were they might sit on the steps if they're still there these people have uh, hung sheets of blue plastic from the rocks and that's where they live under the blue plastic the water pours down the rocks and it's all over the floor what's it contained within that area they're trying to live is their old outdoor loo and the house is just there without a roof completely gutted, that you won't be able to restore those houses. Do you know how they managed to burn all the houses in Timor? I can't get anyone to let me write about this. Indonesia uh, planned it well ahead and spent millions on fire trucks, which they filled with high-octane fuel, and then they used the hoses that they would normally have water coming out of to completely drench the houses with the high-octane fuel, and then they lit them. And so... They could do a row of houses in 10 minutes, and that's how Timor burned. Highly organised, totally evil in the way it was done. Just like the Germans in World War II, the Nazis in World War II, who set the docks alight in London and then dropped um, barrels of, of high-octane fuel into them so that the, the fires didn't burn out the next day, they just got bigger and bigger. Unbelievable, isn't it? What about the house where... Greg was living. That, that's burnt too, yeah. Uh, they've, a lot of them have had some form of cover put over the roof, but no one was living there. Nobody wants to. There's two houses involved in this. I think the journalists spent a couple of days in one and then they moved over to another, right? So we saw both the houses. Both of them are pretty well destroyed. Where's the house we saw in the newsreel or the story where Greg painted... On mm. the side of the house. Well, that, that's all gone. I mean, the paint, the words, they've all been scrubbed off. Probably it's the one that I was in, in the city square, right opposite a most disgusting statue, supposed to be a Timorese warrior breaking the bonds of slavery, uh, put up by the Indonesians. But the way they've actually done it, he's, he's got the bonds of slavery like this, his back's arched, and if you look at it, it looks like he's shot in the back, which unconsciously is quite a good emblem. Of what, of what they did. And a lot of people have waited for years to pull those down, but when I said, are you going to pull that down, they said, no, we're leaving it as evidence. Because, you see, a lot of what has happened in Timor people won't believe. It's like that man Levy, 
who wrote about being in the in the camps, and he, he said the trouble is a day will come when people won't believe it. That's already true. People don't always believe what one is ready to tell them because it is so evil, it's just impossible to... Un How could you actually... A country that says they've got no money for proper food for their people, they've got no money to help people with HIV AIDS, they've got no money for any sort of welfare, but they've got money to have all these trucks filled with high-octane fuel. The people in Timor told me that they saw the big oil tanker waiting out and they think, what's that there for? They looked at it with horror. What's it going to be used for? Well, that's what it was used for. Another interesting thing for your Timorese listeners, I was sitting in the garden one night with a family that had given me a, a bit of room in their house. Their main house had been burnt, but they had a, an old bungalow at the back, which they're now living in. I was telling them how I'd been down walking around where Roger was killed and how I'd always worried about... Um, Lobato's wife, who was killed, there too, shot. And the woman, who's my hostess, she was sitting there sort of almost asleep and she went, Oh, I saw her body. Oh, I saw her body. It had washed up on the shore opposite the post office where I worked. And she was only a young girl, this woman then. And she said, um, Isabel had black panties on and she said, They always made you strip to humiliate you. And she said she was lying next to Rosa Bonaparte. So Timorese, who've worried about what happened to Rosa Bonaparte, she was a very young girl, very, very staunch supporter of the right to self-determination. And she was lying on her back, naked except for her pants, with three deep gashes on the inside of her thigh. Dead shot. So in a way that was closure in some ways, because I'd always worried about Isabel and about her son, who was dragged to the wharf with her and wasn't killed because one of his uncles came down and paid some money to get hold of him. But he must have seen his mother. He's an adult now. He doesn't remember much about it. He says he remembers something about being at the wharf, but nothing else. His mind is shutting it out. Yes, although a lot of people don't. I mean, my son doesn't remember an awful lot about his own father. He was eight when he was killed. He says what disturbs him is he remembers the photograph and he feels that isn't him. He doesn't like the fact that he only remembers the photograph. What was it like in Dili? It was terrible, but it was wonderful. I found out something very important. If you experience joy on behalf of others, it's the purest kind of feeling. I sat on the seawall one day waiting for Mark Davis. It started to rain and I couldn't have cared less. I got drenched through the skin. I just sat on this wall grinning like an idiot because they're not there anymore. <laughs> and all the Timorese are wandering around in relaxed ways, smiling, instead of that tight face and the tight body and eyes everywhere watching, where are they? Can I walk this way or is it dangerous to go? The oppression in Dili before was simply horrendous. Remember you always told the story of the mothers who feared when their daughters went to school whether they'd ever they see, them, see again. them again. No one worries about that anymore. People come out at night at six o'clock and just wander around the streets and chat to each other. It is just the most wonderful thing because at six o'clock before that, when the Indonesians there, they had to go inside and pull down the shades and close the doors and stay inside because the ninja, these were off-duty policemen and soldiers, as you would know, who got out with whips and chains and uh, murdered people most brutally if they found them out on the streets because they always assumed that if you're out, 
you're trying to make contact with, with the resistance. It's an attempt to say there are dissident Timorese who formed into uh, a band of, what would they call them, patriots, and want to get their country away. I mean, it's, it's just nonsense. They're mercenaries. How did you feel when you got back, Shirley? Did you believe that you did all that you could in a short time, saw as much as you could? Oh, no, 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 no. I could stay there a year and I wouldn't get everything done. I wanted to meet the people I wanted to meet, find out who's still alive. 24 years of butchery. You couldn't do it in a lifetime, probably. I'll probably be lucky if I even get an eighth of what I'd... I'm still hoping to go back and find those kids. And also I have a task given to me by a very important priest who, uh, when he gave it to me, and I said I didn't want to take it because I thought it was too important, I said, why do you want me to take this? It was woven when he was ordained. It had his name on it. And he said, I don't want to be forgotten. I said, I've never thought about that. Why don't I want you? Oh, I don't want to be forgotten. Because he expected to die. Well, he didn't. He's there. And I, I said, I'll take it on condition that I can bring it back when Timor's free. And he gave me this funny look as much to say, yeah, well, I won't see that again. But, of course, he did have faith because I also told him that we'd meet soon uh, and we'd be free to have coffee. And we did. By a miracle, I went to England, which I didn't know was going to happen, to give a paper at, a, at an Oxford seminar. And he was uh, sent out of Timor for safekeeping and ended up in Belgium. And while I was in Oxford, I got a call from Belgium saying he was over there. So when I came back from Oxford, I cancelled my flight home. I got on a boat train and went across and we spent three days just talking, talking about all the things we couldn't dare talk about in Dili. And we had the coffee and he said to me, from now on, whatever you say, I believe. And I said, well, you're going to be free. That's going to happen. Shirley Shackleton, she will be missed by many. The Yurok Justice Commission is the first formal truth-telling inquiry into injustice experienced by First Peoples in Victoria. From Monday, February 27 to Friday, March 10, Yurok is holding public hearings with First Peoples witnesses who have experienced injustice in the child protection and criminal justice systems. You can watch the hearings online or make a submission at yurokjusticecommission.org. A 3CR supporter. Commons Conversations is a series of podcasts in which campaigners share their experiences and insights into activism, learning in movements, radical history and more. Produced by the Commons Social Change Library, it focuses on lessons learnt from involvement in First Nations, disability, AIDS, climate justice, wage theft, disaster recovery and other campaigns. To listen to the series, visit www.3cr.org.au slash acting up.
3CR is Radical Radio. Through our on-air content and community structure, we promote real change for workers' rights, gender equality, environmental action, disability justice, and on racism and First Nations sovereignty. Do you want to be part of real radical change? We need you to subscribe. It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation, and $300 solidarity. Call 03-9419-8377. That's 9419-8377. Or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. that women make up just 2% of tradies? AMWU Victoria wants to change that, but we need your help. Are you searching for a rewarding career with a high-value skill set? It's time to consider becoming a tradeswoman. For more information, come to the Hume Women in STEM and Construction Careers and Jobs Expo on Wednesday the 1st of March to kickstart your career. Register at Eventbrite or visit amwu.org.au slash events underscore W-I-T. The Australian Manufacturing Workers Union Victoria is a 3CR supporter. Hey Anne, Mm -hmm. where else would you hear about progressive economics? Well, you can definitely hear about it on 3CR Radio Radio MMT between 5.30 and 6.30pm the second and fourth Friday of each month. Radio NMT. We have seen record numbers of protests in Latin America recently, explicitly calling for an appropriate response to the pandemic, alongside the protection of healthcare workers and social and economic welfare for the population. Ecuador, Brazil, Bolivia and Chile have all grown increasingly feeble in their justifications for both a lack of action against coronavirus as well as their increasingly authoritarian behaviour. Suffice to say, the Latin American right is being undone by its contempt for public healthcare. Its contempt for an essential human right. And with their traditional backer, the USA, embroiled in its own pandemic nightmare, the kleptocrats, religious zealots and maniacs leading Latin America's right wing are now on their own, it seems. And the region's people, from all available evidence, are perfectly aware of this fact. And their actions against this public health and political emergency are becoming all the more radical. After all, it is a matter of life and death, as it has always been in Latin America. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Now you see it, now you don't. We're talking about a cesium-137 capsule, smaller than a coin lost in the vast outback of Western Australia. On its way from Rio Tinto in the Pilbara to a depot in northern Perth. I spoke with Dr Margie Beavis, the past president of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War and ICANN 
the international campaign against nuclear weapons and ask to first if there's been any information as to who reported the lost capsule. Uh, not to my knowledge, but I, they did take a while to report it. It was often unpacked for a number of days and then it wasn't the information wasn't released for a while after that because they went hunting for it initially because they really didn't want a member of the public to pick it up so they didn't want people to go looking for it. Or they didn't want to recognise a mistake. Well, what's interesting, I've been doing some reading around this and it actually happens surprisingly often. According to the Australian Radiation Incident Register, there are annual occurrences of radioactive sources being lost, stolen and found. There was one in 2020, six in 2019, one in 2018, four in 2017 and 15 in 2016. Mind you, 10 of those were reports of finding low-level hospital waste. But It's really not nearly as rare as people would think. Well, it's alarming, surely. It does make you wonder about all the assurances we're getting from transport of nuclear waste in Australia and all the people saying it's perfectly safe. Globally, apparently, in the last 10 years, there's been over 1,200 incidents of nuclear and other radioactive materials. And they euphemistically call it outside regulatory control. But certainly there have been, yeah... It's it's not uh, the harmless substance nor the harmless transport that we keep being told. So where are these transports going from and to, usually in Australia? There's, it's used a lot in the mining industry and other industries. The, the, the gauges are used to measure density and flow of materials. So this particular one was used to measure the density of iron ore in the feed from the Rio Tinto, I'm probably saying this wrong, Gudai Dari mine, which is north of Newman. And so basically what they do is they pass they pass the gauge, they put the gauge on one side with the radioactive cesium in it, and then on the other side they have a sensor and they can tell the, how much iron ore is going through the pipe by how much radioactivity is picked up by the sensor. We used a lot in various industries. What about medical? It's really interesting. Medicine is so often dragged into this. The medicine for radiotherapy is a very short-acting form of radiation. So this source that was lost by the mining industry would stay radioactive for about 300 years. The vast majority of, in fact, it's not even radiotherapy. It's, it's, some of your listeners would know, but some would be surprised to find that radiotherapy is not using nuclear medicine. For nuclear medicine, it's a separate thing again. Radiotherapy is using very intense x-rays, whereas nuclear medicine, which is where we need radioactive materials, is used for things like thyroid cancer. A lot of it is used for looking at heart disease and detecting problems in heart disease. And there's other uses for it also. In terms of medical radiation, the vast majority of nuclear medicine the patient is given an injection of some radioactive material, but it loses its radiation incredibly quickly. And the waste from nuclear medicine is stored in lead-lined rubbish bins at the hospitals for about a month, two months, and then it's lost so much radiation that it can go into the normal rubbish tip. So a lot of the hoopla from the government about the radioactive waste material saying we need it for nuclear medicine, it's actually not true. Arguments are really about what happens to the radioactive waste from the nuclear reactor and 
a couple of years back, the government decided to build a new intermediate level waste store at Lucas Heights, which is where the vast majority of the radioactive waste is. And it would be perfectly okay for that radioactive waste to stay at Lucas Heights for many decades. And in fact, our panzer was asked, in, the head of our panzer was asked in Senate estimates two or three years ago about how long could the radioactive waste generated by Lucas Heights reactor stay at the Lucas Heights reactor? And he said it would be quite comfortably stored there for decades to come. Mm. So I think the arguments about the radioactive waste facility being needed in South Australia are pretty spurious, really. Well, let's go back to the industrial use of it. Who is in charge of making sure that they do the right thing? Look, there's various agencies. Because of radioactive material... There's the Australian Radiation Protection and Nuclear Safety Agency. There's the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation. There's the state-based health departments and health regulators. West Australia had their own particular, trying to think of its actual name. But what's interesting is that the fines for this happening was only about $1,000. So that's sort of a bit disturbing in terms of a bit more care should be taken. In some ways, it's not such a miracle that it was found, given that a radiation source is not just sitting by the side of the road, it's sitting by the side of the road emitting radiation. So they they drove a car at about 70 kilometres an hour with a radiation sensor along the route, and basically the, the source was sitting by the side of the road saying, here I am, here I am, here I am. And so they picked it up using a um, radiation de- detection equipment. Good, Very good that they found it, but... There certainly are other times that radioactive material has been lost in Australia and hasn't been found. Um, and certainly internationally, there's a couple of times when it's been catastrophic that they've lost radioactive material and haven't found it, where people have been very sick or even died because of this. I'm sure you noticed the contradictions between the so-called experts who were reporting on this. You had one saying, if you find it, stay away five metres away or you get radiation burns or radiation sickness and then you'd yep. start, others would say, oh, well, it's no worse than having an extra X-ray. It's a bit like being out in the sun, though. You can step out into the sun when it's really strong for a minute and you're just fine. If you step out into the sun and you lie there for six hours, you can get really nasty blistering and, and become very seriously ill. Um, there was a guy in Peru who popped one of, or she was a slightly different source, actually it was a different different type of radiation material, but he put it in his back pocket for about five hours and then ended up seriously ill, ended up losing his leg and really did very badly. And then in a similar, uh, that was a um, Iridium-192 source. In the Soviet Union years ago, there was a cesium-137, which is the same as this source, possibly stronger, but they don't say, where in fact it ended up being it was lost in a quarry and then that gravel ended up being used in the construction of an apartment. And then in that apartment, this is 1981, an 18-year-old girl got leukemia and died, then a 16-year-old brother got leukemia and died, then a few years later her mother got leukemia and died and they, the doctors thought this was all genetic and then another family moved in and the son of the next family got leukemia and died. And they found that, that, was, that there was a capsule of cesium-137 sitting in the wall of that apartment from the gravel that was from the lost radioactive saffron. So that was sort of the worst case scenario. Now, you'd speculate that that capsule was more potent than this capsule, but 
it's basically the more exposure you have for a longer time, the worse it is. Well, we can only hope, I suppose, that the regulators will make it more stringent for these companies or whoever is using these devices. Oh, absolutely. It, it does need to be carefully carefully monitored and responsibly dealt with. I mean, that's what's so... The level of responsibility taken at the macro level and the micro level, I mean, going back to the waste dump, basically that is not world's best practice. The intermediate level waste, they're just shipping out so it's not the leukocytes reactor anymore. They should be doing long-term planning, which will take sort of three or four decades to actually sort of, you know, find a site, work out the deep geological disposal. They also should be seriously addressing other ways we can use to make radioactive materials in a nuclear reactor that produces an enormous amount of this intermediate level waste because the intermediate level waste remains radioactive for 10,000 years as I've <laughs> said a number of times on your program and we need to stop we're effectively just leaving future generations with a huge liability And where does this leave the people of Kimber and surrounds? Oh, still in limbo poor thing, I mean it must be just ghastly for everybody there really I read an article a few weeks back saying that they're now wanting to employ a public relations company for hundreds of thousands of dollars to improve their image because they don't want to be known as the nuclear waste capital of Australia, which is sort of like <laughs> breathtaking, really. And we're all waiting to see what happens with the Bangala appeal, um, the fact that they totally ignored the native title and the opinions of the traditional landholders is extraordinary and very disappointing. Yes, I feel they're in limbo, but the government seems to want to keep the press on, so we'll wait, we'll watch this space. And at what stage is the appeal? It's a good question. My understanding is that it had the hearings, but the decision is not down, but don't quote me on that. That's, that's yeah, I, I haven't been following the court case probably as closely as I should be. And I have read that, you know, that area around Kimber is a, a really rich for agriculture, and I suppose there's not that many places in South Australia in that area, which is, but they've picked that spot to the detriment of everybody. Yes, I think a lot of the local farmers are very concerned about what impact on their grain production, the reputation of their grain production. I mean, Australia um, trades a lot on the clean, green source of food, um, and I think a number of the, the grain producers there are very concerned about how it will damage Kimber's reputation as a source of clean grain production. So it's watch this space, Margie? At this point, yes. And and write to your local member or even visit your local member and talk to them about it. If there's lots of information. Um, Friends of the Earth have excellent resources. But yes, if you if you want to take this further, write to your local member, either by email or handwritten letter. It's funny, handwritten letters are, are powerful too. Thank you so very much. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Jen. Dr. Margie Beavers and the mystery of the lost capsule. Do you believe in the right to protest? Are you concerned about climate change and the environment? Then come and make your voice heard at a mass meeting on the right to organise for climate and the environment. 
Join others at 6.30pm on Tuesday, March 7th at 535 Elizabeth Street, Central Melbourne to discuss and then vote on practical ways to support climate action and the environment and to defend the right to protest. Speakers include proud Gunai Kurnai woman Marjorie Thorpe, United Workers Union's Godfrey Mose, and Environment Justice Australia lawyer Natalie Hogan, and will be facilitated by Tuffy Morwitzer, campaigner for the Goongarra Environment Centre. Come participate in some direct democracy for a better world. Your voice matters. RSVP is essential. Go to gecko.org.au forward slash calendar to book your ticket. This event is wheelchair accessible and Auslan interpreted. A 3CR supporter. Have you experienced or seen racism against blackfellas? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up. Be heard. Call it out. Go to callitout.com.au. A 3CR supporter. 3CR is Radical Radio, and that means more than just alternative current affairs and political coverage. We're Radical because we're an independent media outlet, owned and operated by the community. We're Radical because we give communities the control of their own shows, with their own music, in their own languages. We're Radical because we provide a media platform for communities to build their own power to create social change. Become a subscriber and support Radical Radio. Call us on 03 9419 8377 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au/subscribe. Live it up at this year's National Sustainable Living Festival, showcasing solutions to the ecological challenges of our times. Join the sustainability movement for a month of workshops, talks, demonstrations, artworks, exhibitions, films and live performances. Featuring the great local picnic at Royal Botanic Gardens for a big green day out with ABC Gardening Australia's Costa Georgiatis. Full program online, slf.org.au. The National Sustainable Living Festival is a 3CR supporter. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done By Law, 6pm Tuesdays. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! 
You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. John Curipel is a Newcastle-based historian, theologian, social commentator and published author of three books and an occasional contributor to John Menadieu's public policy journal, Pearls and Irritations. Focusing with John today first on the overthrow in a coup on the 7th of December last year of President Pedro Castillo, who was subsequently since to 18 months imprisonment. John, were you following events in Peru after Castillo came to power in mid-2021 until that coup in December 2022? Yeah, I was following those events. Uh, Castillo had a very ambitious program, uh, particularly with mining issues, but uh, he was rather, his wings were cut by a much more conservative Congress, so he was not able to carry out all the programs he wanted. He had a, a fairly radical program. He wanted to take 70% of the of the uh, mining profits and to keep them in Peru for various social programs. That was uh, not possible with Congress, and he was only successful. But that seems that was enough by raising the amount of company profits on on mining profits from 41 to 44%, which is a pretty minimal increase, but uh, that caused enough furor as it was. uh, As we know, he was uh, cast from power. And he didn't win by much, did he, in that election in 2021? No, it's a fairly divided uh, society. A lot of it is um, along racial issues, a much... uh, Whiter uh, Spanish background um, urban areas versus much more in the south where you've got the indigenous peoples who were his strongest supporters. And of course, much of the mining is taking place in the, in the south of the country and the indigenous communities are the ones that are affected and they had frequent protests against the effects, the environmental effects of the mining. And they were pretty bad, weren't they, over many years? Oh, yes, yeah, very, very poor. The, the laws are pretty loose around, uh, you know, environmental standards are pretty loose in the, in the country. I can remember years ago they were talking about the tin mining and the diseases that the miners were left with. Yeah, well, tins are a major export for Peru. There are quite a number of um, different minerals that are exported, copper in particular, and copper is like uh, gold these days. Uh, Peru is second in the world to its neighbour, Chile, in the amount of copper that it, it has. And as we know, the price for copper, and we see it stolen here off all sorts of places. It's, it's a very valuable commodity. Copper, there's zinc, there's lead, there's also a lot of liquefied natural gas. So that lasting is, of course, very beneficial at the moment where there's a blockage of all the sanctions against Russian exports of LNG, so Peru should be a wealthy country with all those minerals, but it's not. 
Well, some people are very wealthy. Yeah, well, some people are very, very wealthy. Obviously, there's huge profits in, in mining. The amount of um, the profits in, in mining, 2021, 15.7 billion profits in mining from the country that the company's taking out of the country that year. So there's massive amounts, but of course it's distributed uh, very equitably and, and this is a, a lot of the protests as well. And the ones that are not getting the benefits are the ones that are bearing the environmental and other costs of the mining. Come back to that in a moment, but were you finding patterns of destabilisation that you might have seen in other South American countries when a left or a centre-left government comes to power? Yeah, well, of course, the obvious example is, is the, the neighbouring country of Bolivia. And uh, Bolivia, again, should be an incredibly wealthy country. It has so many minerals, uh, different minerals to a lot of them to Peru, but minerals that are in great demand in the new renewable age of uh, power. But uh, once again, there, there was a coup in Bolivia. The government of Evo Morales was overthrown, but uh, of course, just a while later, they were re-elected. So when elections were called, the Morales party was re-elected and we don't know if the same will happen in Peru, of course. Do you believe that that mining issue is the predominant one in the reasons that he was ousted? Or is it just that his whole program, that they couldn't stomach? Well, the mining is an incredibly important in uh, Peru, it's uh, 10% of the of the GNP is represented by mining, which is a massive amount. 58.7% of exports due to mining. So it would seem that the mining is a, is a huge issue in Peru. Uh, there's 46 new projects that are being looked at at the moment, which will cost 76 billion. So it's a massive part of, of the economy and there's a lot of suspicious stuff around the beatings, of course, just before the Peru, uh, Peruvian coup and just after. And things are returned to normal. The threat of uh, Castillo has been removed, uh, but of course people are resisting that. And There's a few ministers of the new government who resigned the other day and uh, and Dino Boloate, who's the new president, is under increasing pressure from all these protests and, and some of the protests and the responses are getting fairly violent. There's about 60 people have been killed in the protests uh, since the overthrow of the government. So there's a lot. It's a powder keg at the moment. Well, let's look at those mining companies that are operating in Peru, apart from the Australians. Are they mainly United States or are they... Canada, are there other countries there as well? But mainly US and Canada and Australia, of course, are the uh, three big uh, miners. There's some Chinese presence, but uh, not in the league of the, uh, of the US. And, and Canada, of course, has always been the US backyard, South America. We saw Australian company way back in Chile, didn't we, with Alan Bond, Oh, yes, yeah, Bond was there in a, a big way. The current uh, companies that have strong connections to Australia, and I'm speaking from Newcastle, of course, so I see plenty of these companies 
around up the up the Hunter Valley here. BHP, the big Australian, Rio Tinto, which is 35% Australian-owned. Glencore, which is a Swiss company, but um, plenty of presence in Australia and in the local area I'm in. So um, these are other companies. There's some smaller companies, but uh, these are the major companies that are, that are taking huge profits out of, out of Peru. And what minerals are they interested in? Oh, look, uh, the minerals I, I've mentioned, main ones there, uh, copper, lead, zinc, tin, liquefied natural gas. But the other interesting uh, mineral found in large amounts in Peru is gold. Now, gold, of course, as uh, we may well know now, is up around $2,000 um, US dollars per ounce. It's um, a commodity in great demand. And the reason it's in great demand is countries are buying it up as an alternative reserve to the US dollar. You've got reserves in the US dollar, and if you're not right on side of the US, you're always at risk of sanctions. So countries like uh, particularly China and Russia are buying up gold to uh, store as an alternative uh, reserve to holding their reserves in the the US dollar that's so subject to US politics. Uh, Gold is, is... Increasing in in value, a massive amount of Peru has has plenty of that. Well, as you've mentioned, the people of Peru or the the poorer people of Peru are not giving up on their government, and they're paying a price, aren't they? Oh yeah, there's massive uh, protests there. As I mentioned, about sixty, probably a few more now have been killed in in those protests. The response to the protests has been pretty violent and. The companies, are, as well as um, the protests, the companies are hitting Peru. They've uh, they're suspended projects because of the, the protests, and the companies are appealing to uh, the international state dispute settlements. What that body does is award money from the state to companies that have uh, lost profits or supposedly lost profits due to state policy. So uh, you know, Peru's been hit from all sides. It's a big issue, really. There's a lot of lot at stake, yet we hear very little of it in our media here in Australia. No, well, unfortunately, the media are becoming more and more narrow in, in what they are, are covering, uh, with the exception of you, of course, but the um, the general mainstream media uh, become more and more disappointing in Australia. There's a lot to this story, a lot of it's Conjecture, and you can only have conjecture when you you see the uh, the U.S. ambassador, of course. And when we think of South America, we think of coups, and when we think of coups, we think of the U.S. But the ambassador, Lisa Kenny, was uh, behind Mike in any way. The coup, she was supportive of it, and immediately afterwards was meeting the new government, and things have returned to normal. So, but of course, there's. Uh, there's no fire there, there's only smoke and those sorts of things. One would suspect that uh, they had a large background role to this coup. What do you see as the near future for Peru then? More of the same? Well, one doesn't know. It could be more of the same, but of course in the neighbouring country, Bolivia, the party, the, the, the movement towards socialism was the party of Evo Morales and that was returned to power with a new leader, but um, it was returned 
to power after the coup. So the coup took place, and it was much the same as the one in Peru. Uh, it was you know, the the establishment wanting to take power. Of course, Morales, of course, was a leader backed by the large indigenous population in Bolivia. But uh, when the elections came around, the people voted back in Morales' party. So we could get the same in Peru. And there's elections that uh, you know they're trying to push them forward, but that's been resisted by the by the new government. So we'll just have to wait and see. What about the proximity to Brazil, actually a, a neighbour of Peru? Is that significant at all for the future of Peru? Yeah, well, look, the the movement is toward um, has been movements both ways in. South America, the, the continent seems to move largely in one direction. It tends to be moving more to the progressive left sort of side of politics. Now, as we've seen in, in Brazil, of course, um, with the uh, return of Lula da Silva, and, but, uh, and in Chile, we've seen the same thing. And, uh, of course, Colombia, a number of, of places, as well as Bolivia, and we have seen that in Peru until this coup, of course. Do you believe that the US is losing its grip on the area? Look, there's massive movements um, by the Chinese through Belt and Road, and, uh, and the, the South Americans are becoming more involved in that project. A lot of the countries in South America have signed up to be part of, of Belt and Road. That's a threat to the US, of course, the great geopolitical conflict at the moment is the US and China and China are becoming more and more often the preferred or major trading partner of a lot of countries around the world, not only in South America but also Africa and through the Eurasian continent. So I'm sure the US are, you know, it's no longer their backyard as it has been since they declared the Monroe Doctrine back in the mid-19th century. So there are certainly threats to the US. Is there any more you'd like to say about Peru, John? No, I think uh, that, that's uh, covered it. It's something we don't hear much about here, but it's interesting that there's a, a significant Australian involvement uh, in the country. I've been speaking with John Kirapel, Newcastle-based historian, theologian, social commentator and publisher of three books. I spoke with John next about his article titled The Blind Side of Western War and Western War Crimes. The calls mount for the Russian leader to be dragged before a war crimes tribunal, while everyone from international sporting bodies to businesses and banks is busy sanctioning Russia. Yet the three world leaders responsible for the illegal Iraq War of 2003 have still not been held to account. This is the opinion of John Kirapel. John, it's 20 years this March since the beginning of what is known as the Second Gulf War, when a coalition of countries, principally the US and Great Britain, invaded Iraq, together with Australian troops, among others, under the leadership of the US. The results are still being felt to this day, but no Western leaders, as I mentioned earlier, have been called to account. One example of what you call the blind side of Western wars and Western war crimes. 
Those war crimes began long before the first bombs exploded over Iraq, didn't they? Oh, that, that's right. And the, the sanctions that uh, applied against Iraq killed, I haven't got a figure in front of me, but I know it was thousands and thousands of the most vulnerable. There was the sanctions against the medicines that were needed, against the equipment that were, was needed um, to help the sick and the, and the hospitals were short of equipment. And there, there were literally thousands of um, vulnerable, including babies who, who died because of the... And that was just dismissed as, oh, that's Iraqi propaganda used by Saddam. But of course it was, it was a reality. Someone told me a, a while ago that the US actually brought down or bombed out all the electricity supplies in Iraq at one time. Oh yeah, the, the, uh, the, the extent that those things happened in Iraq, and I'm not justifying what um, Vladimir Putin is doing, but it is uh, way beyond um, what we're seeing in, in Ukraine. Fallujah, you just look at photos of Fallujah after the, uh, after the attack there, and the, the city has not got anything left standing. It's rubble upon rubble. It, it's absolute destruction of the highest level. So, uh, yep, these uh, bombing of facilities, uh, it's not something that uh, Vladimir has just discovered for himself. You know, he's got plenty of good examples to go on. But the dropping of chemical weapons reflect white phosphorus, napan. What can you say about those? Well, look, uh, these are weapons we first became familiar with during the Vietnam days. The terrible white phosphorus just burns, and you can't put out. It literally just burns right through your through the body. So it's a slow and agonising death. And uh, the amount of uranium you know, that was used in, in the Iraq War, the, uh, the tipped bombs. Um, so they'd be harder and go through uh, through materials better. The amount of radioactive um, use in, in in Iraq was terrible as well. And of course, that doesn't go away. You've got the the babies who were horribly defected when they were born, and we're still seeing That's that right. today. That's right. And as I say, I'm old enough to remember the. Vietnam and uh, the same thing there's still children being born in Vietnam today and that war was um, 50 years behind us almost but there's still children being born terribly malformed because of um, the chemicals that we were used in that country Were there other cities or places apart from Fallujah that were bombed out of existence? Fallujah is a classic example um, Basically, all the Iraqi cities suffered great um, destruction, but Fallujah is the the example par excellence of just absolute destruction. You know, destruction beyond you know, Berlin in World War Two. It, it's just absolute uh, destruction. Maybe Hamburg in World War Two might be about the only equivalent example. Well, how do war crimes tribunals work if you've got Examples like you've been talking about, and yet US obviously has never been called to account. How does a tribunal work? 
Well, the US doesn't recognise the tribunal, so their citizens are protected from it. But uh, we wonder how, how it works because all we hear called before is tribunals, as I say, often are, are petty um, Balkan warlords or uh, African despots. and There's no one else called for it. I, I can't see um, Vladimir Putin being called before it simply because the, there's too much power associated with him and certainly we've seen that Bush, Blair and Howard were never called before it um, but of course we get Milosevic before it but um, not these larger scale war criminals and we've had two prime ministers in Australia who have declared illegal wars That's what, which uh, under the Nuremberg Convention that makes them war criminals but uh, we don't see that uh, them called to account Just quoting what George Monbiat wrote in 2006, Saddam, facing a possible death sentence, is accused of mass murder, torture, false imprisonment and the use of chemical weapons. He is certainly guilty on all counts. So it now seems are those who overthrew him. That's correct. But we like to, I remember the stories at the time about Saddam and, uh, you know, there were meat minces that were people were being thrown into and that all these horrific sort of things and no doubt uh, he was not the sort of person I'd like as my best friend but uh, it was just a massive exaggeration without any evidence. Of course this is this projection onto the other and now it's of course onto Vladimir Putin uh, that evil resides out there that we would never do this sort of thing ourselves and yet History shows that um, that we certainly have done this sort of thing. Well, it's not just history in Iraq, is it? We've only talked about one war of the United States in the last God knows how many years. Oh, yeah, there are just so many. I, I think I no less person than uh, former President Jimmy Carter said that uh, we are the most warlike nation on the planet. I think his presidency is one of the few times where the US wasn't at war anywhere. It's just a on going list and of course one wonders its effectiveness as um, foreign policy because in my experience, uh, my lifetime rather the only one I think they've actually definitely won was defeating the might of Granada in 1983. And, uh, they invaded there, uh, Her Majesty's territory and she didn't say anything about it. But, uh, that was a successful invasion, but um, nowhere else have they really come out of it. And of course, Afghanistan is just a, a pure disaster. The whole near Middle East is, is a disaster. Vietnam, of course, was uh, a terrible loss. There's been terrible things in Cambodia and, and Laos and uh, Nicaragua, of course. And man, they spent so long trying to get out. Daniel Ortega, he's back in power. So I think my feeling is the Chinese are sitting back and saying, well, you do all that. Um, we've got a very different way and a more effective way of influencing the world. And you wonder when the people of all those countries that you've just mentioned will ever get justice for what was done to them. That's right. Uh, it's uh, has been set up um, that their countries, are, they've tr- tried to, make sure these countries are open to exploitation. And the cost to, to people is, is absolutely enormous. Um, the Lancet, no less than the great medical journal, 
Speaking of Iraq, said there were 654,965 excess deaths in Iraq just between the invasion in 2003 and 2006. The UN estimates 34,452 innocent civilians being killed in Iraq, and I imagine that's a fairly conservative estimate. But we like to speak of the rules-based international order, of course, there's no such thing. The rules-based international order is a construction of, of the West, and there's only one international order, and that's that uh, determined by the UN, and when the UN doesn't bend our way, we tend to just go outside, as we saw in in Iraq, and um, invade uh, that country. When the UN said uh, you know, hadn't given us permission to, we had a coalition of the willing to do the to the job. So this rules-based international order is a, a means, basically, of um, we make the rules and uh, we give you the orders. And of course, then there's the five permanent members of the Security Council who control everything, really, because they can veto whatever the law is or whatever the issue is. You've only got to have one dissenting voice, and you do they have that often, and the score goes to now. Yeah, well, that's right, and that's interesting look at that body. We've got nations on it um, that now are not greatly significant in the, in the world. You know, you've got... Um, France, we've got um, Britain on it. Well, those those nations, in terms of world prominence, are nowhere near nations that are wanting to be a part of it. Brazil, uh, India is a classic example. There's no representation from Africa. It's a very Western-oriented um, body. And so when you think of it, it's um, France, Britain, Russia, the U.S., uh, it's very Eurocentric, so I'm sure that's up to change in the next period. Um, the UN's going to have to go through some major changes. Final words? Look, uh, it's just this uh, ability to project, and it's a very dangerous thing. When uh, Carl Jung, the uh, analytical psychologist, spoke about the shadow side, he was referring to his neighbouring country, Germany, the rationality, you're speaking for the Nazis kind of power, the rationality of Germany is so dangerous, it's um, not understanding uh, the depth of the of the dark side that um, all nations have, all peoples have. He said that he, project, he um, prophesied over the, uh, the rise of the Nazis to power, but of course no, they were classic projections, they projected all darkness to the other to the Jews in particular, but also the Romanies, the homosexuals, the communists. And we tend to still do the same thing. We project our darkness out of So Putin is terrible. He invades a country, an innocent country. We would never do that. He, he invades on false pretenses. We would never do that. And of course, we know from from history and, and very current events, uh, recent events, that we do exactly the same thing. We've done it in, without any cause. Vietnam was a classic case of lies given and, uh, about the, the Maddox, the USS Maddox that we knew. No doubt that was a lie and we knew it at the time, really. And we know that the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq were a lie. Uh, we project all sorts of lies to uh, starve and, and kill people in 
Central America, so Nicaragua would be Contras for common faith course there for many years. We do this all the time, but we project our dark side, our evil, onto the other, and that, that's a very comforting thing to do, but it, it saves us from having to face up to our, the, our own reality. You must be disturbed at the propaganda here in Australia against China and preparations, and they are preparations for war, aren't they? Oh, very much so. And, of course, then the U.S. will wash their hands of it and it'll be Australia. We'll be the ones that are up against China. This is utter madness. I've never seen politicians so docile and so non-analytical about what is happening. This is very, very dangerous indeed. China is the aggressive country. We have a whole ring of bases the West has around China, uh, from Japan right down to the, the Philippines and now northern Australia, designed to contain China. And they're, they're terribly aggressive ones. They've taken a few pieces of rocks in the uh, southeast China Sea. And uh, that's aggressive. But, of course, we've got all these bases around China. China... Uh, of course, everyone reacts to what's happened to them. The Chinese are reacting to their history. They had a century of humiliation, and they're determined not to go um, through it again. And that century of humiliation, we ran opium to them. We were opium warlords. Um, we destroyed their summer palace just as a fit of peak. The Chinese remember this, but uh, we're protecting all evil on onto them. And it's a very, very dangerous situation at the moment. And um, this whole orcus that we've signed up to, and, and it's really quite quite dangerous. We're trying to contain China, and of course, all projections show that that will be impossible. If you only have to look at Price Waterhouse Coopers and Standard Bank, and they project the Chinese economy is going to dwarf that of the West. In fact, the projections are it will be China first, India second, and the US third size economies by as soon as 2040. So it's really folly what we're, we're trying to do. It puts us in the front line. Well, thank you, John, and hope to talk to you again. Thanks, Jan. Lovely to um, speak to you, and uh, thanks for your listeners as well. And you have been listening to John Carapel. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.